Our text today is Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them would love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Last year it was Easter. And it was in the evening, and it was in New York City, and Jim Cimbala was tired. He had preached all day, not only there in that church, but in a number of shelters around the city, and here it was, the last service of the day, Easter night. Instead of standing behind the Lucite pulpit or lectern, he decided to sit on the platform, and he dangled his feet and that's where he preached from, from the platform, sitting on it. He said when he finished, he said it was a wonderful service. People began to stream forward to be prayed for by counselors who were near the platform. And I happened to look out, and I saw a man in about the 10th row in the center aisle who looked to be about 50. He's kind of worn and haggard. And as my eyes met his eyes, he mouthed these words, Can I talk to you? And instantly I thought, Oh, great. <laughs> we have homeless people coming in all the time. And they're always looking for a handout. And I thought to myself, What a perfect way to end a tough day. To be panhandled by a homeless guy looking for wine money. 
I nodded to him, and he came up, and he got within about five feet of me, and I was almost knocked over by the smell. He said, I diverted my eyes and my nose away to catch a breath, and then I looked back at him and said, what's your name? And he said, my name's David. I said, how long have you been on the street? He said, six years. I said, well, how old are you? He said, I'm 32. His hair was matted. He was missing his front teeth. He looked for all the world like he was about 20 years older. I said, where'd you sleep last night? He said, in an abandoned car. And he said, instantly, I thought to myself, I'm not going to get one of, the, one of the other pastors to deal with this. I just instinctively reached in my pocket and pulled out a 20 and held it out to him. And he stuck his finger in my face and said, I don't want your money. I want this Jesus you're talking about. Because I've been in a tomb a lot longer than three days. He said, I... I instinctively bowed my head and started to cry. I said, oh, God, forgive me. How could I think all he wanted was money when you wanted to give him yourself? Forgive me, Lord. He said, right when I said those words, I felt the full weight of David's body pressing against my white shirt and tie. And he started sobbing, too. And all at once, his aroma was wonderful to me. And the Lord said to me, if you don't like his smell, I can't use you. Someone has said, anytime a person stands or sits to preach, he or she is preaching to at least seven out of ten people who are in a tomb. And there's no tomb darker than the tomb of guilt. I remember about 30 years ago being in a little town in Pennsylvania and R.C. Sproul was talking to a group of us. He said, you know something I've discovered? He said, I know all the arguments of the pagans. After all, I was one for a long time. And no longer do I challenge their arguments. I simply ask them a question. What are you going to do with your guilt? That's what this text is all about. Of all the gospel writers, Luke is the only one that describes this scene. The other three tell about a woman who does similar things at the end of Jesus' ministry, but Luke's the only one that gives this account of this woman near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And remember what immediately precedes it? The disciples of John come to Jesus asking this question, are you the one who is to come, or should we go on looking for another? And do you remember what Jesus said to them? You go back and you tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. In other words, go back and tell John 
that what the Holy Spirit has anointed me to do, I'm doing. I'm proclaiming good news to the poor, sight to the blind, liberty to the captive, freedom to the oppressed. And Luke, in his wisdom, immediately follows that response from Jesus with the story of this woman in the home of a Pharisee named Simon. There's no greater example of freeing a captive than this woman. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the obvious. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Now remember one of the greatest criticisms of Jesus. It was a criticism that they excoriated Jesus with. He is a glutton and a wine-bibber. In other words, he's a drunk and he's a slob. And it's interesting, the Gospels are real even on their portrayal of Jesus' eating patterns. First miracle that he performs is at a wedding, a week long, where he eats, where he drinks. He's seen eating and drinking with reckless abandon. And yet I would remind you that immediately after he comes up out of the waters of baptism and the Holy Spirit descends on him and he's anointed for his ministry, the first thing the Holy Spirit does is drives him into the wilderness where he neither eats nor drinks for 40 days and 40 nights. I would remind you that the last time he's with his disciples, he says to them around that table, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. The portrayal of Jesus as it comes, as it relates to eating and drinking is, is quite expansive. He eats, he drinks, he fasts, and he prays. And the reason that the Gospels labor all of that is because they want to demonstrate, the writers do, that Jesus, when he took on all flesh, he took on all of it. When he became flesh and blood, he became just like us. And here he is eating in the home of a Pharisee. And Luke says a woman, a sinner, comes in to see him. I love what Alexander McLaren says. He says, we always assume that purity repels the sinner. But Jesus' purity does the opposite. It attracts. McLaren continues, I imagine it would have been an awful long time before a penitent woman who would come in and weep at the feet of Gamaliel. You know, you can read all about Plato and Aristotle and you don't see any women weeping at their feet. There's nothing clearer in the gospel than this. Jesus' incredible tenderness to those who know the depth of their need. And... Jesus' rejection of those who believe they have no need. You know what that tells me? That tells me that a church that loses its desire for purity 
and for loving the ungodly is a church that loses its grasp on Jesus. Think about it. If Jesus didn't love sinners, he wouldn't have loved anyone. Then second, notice not only the obvious, notice some observations. Behold a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, we don't know anything about where this is. We don't know the town. We don't know the woman's name. We don't hear any of her words. We know very little about her except that she is a sinner. She's one of the few people in the New Testament that is described only by an adjective. She is a sinful woman. That's really all we know in terms of a description. And yet Luke tells her quite a bit, tells us quite a bit about her. In fact, he tells us five things that she does. And remember, five is the number of grace. First of all, he says she comes into the house and stands beside him as he is reclining at the table. In the first century, the table was in the middle of the room and the men would repose on their left elbow and their feet would be out toward the door. So when she comes in, Luke says she stands behind him. As he's laying on the ground, his feet toward the door, she comes in just a little ways, and she stands behind him. Why? Because she doesn't feel worthy to look at his face. She's too ashamed. Not only does she stand at his, behind him, but as she stands there, the second thing, she begins to cry, and her tears are so numerous that they begin to wet his feet. And then his feet become her sole source of attention. She focuses her entire attention at his feet. Have you ever thought about the things that happen at Jesus' feet? Luke tells us that when Peter is in a boat with Jesus and Jesus performs a great miracle, there's a great catch of fish. You know what Peter does? He drops down into the hull of the ship at the feet of Jesus and says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Matthew tells us, or Mark tells us, of a Syrophoenician woman who comes into a house where Jesus is seated. She falls at his feet. John tells us of a woman named Mary who sits at his feet. Luke tells us of another woman who has been bleeding for 11 years and she crawls through a crowd to come to his feet. Every place or every time a person comes to that place, the feet of Jesus, they always receive grace and unconditional love at his feet. It's as if Jesus has ears at his feet. So here this woman drops to his feet. And there at his feet, she does a third thing. She begins to wipe his feet 
wiped the tears from his feet with her hair, her most glorious attribute, her hair. She uses to wipe his most ignoble body part, his feet. And so let's review. She comes in and stands behind him. She begins to wipe or weep upon his feet. She begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And then she does a fourth thing. Luke says she begins to kiss his feet. There are only two places in the gospel where anyone is said to kiss Jesus. Judas, when he betrays Jesus, he kisses his face. And this woman comes in and kisses his feet out of a grateful heart. You say, how do you know she's grateful? Because of the fifth thing he tells us. She takes a flask of ointment. She breaks it open and pours it on his feet. Now, we know it's costly ointment because in that, those texts in the other Gospels that talk about a woman who comes later in his ministry and begins to pour ointment on his feet, Judas protests and says, that could have been sold for a lot of money and given to the poor. So it's costly perfume, costly ointment. And I ask you, where did she get that? Where did she get this ointment that's costly? She got it from her sin. There's only one place she would have secured that. From the proceeds of a sinful life. So you think about it. She brings her most prized asset. And it is the product of her own sin. And she not only kisses his feet, but she takes her treasure and she pours it out on his feet. Then third, notice the objection. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. But you see, Jesus does know her. He not only knows her, he knows Simon. How does he know? The Holy Spirit, as he reclines at that table, tells him. The Holy Spirit gives him all of the data he needs about the identity, the true identity, of this woman and Simon. When she walks in, Simon's chief concern is to avoid a scandal. A dinner party was a public event. People could come and gather around that house, listen to all that's discussed. When this woman who is a, a woman of the city, a sinner comes in, Simon's chief concern is, I don't want problems in my house. After all, I'm a leading man. If that woman would have come to Simon's feet as he reclined, he would have kicked her away. Why? Because he missed the grace. You see, if Simon had known her better, he would have known 
of the change that had taken place in her heart. And he would have known the source of that change. And he would have celebrated the fact that this woman was coming to express her gratitude. But he doesn't see any of that because he's blind to her. He's blind to himself. He only sees his own interests. That brings us to the last point. Notice the object. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and has wiped them with her hair. You see, Simon misses what most Christians miss. This woman doesn't come to this house to get forgiveness. She comes because she already has experienced it. At some point in the past, her life had intersected with Jesus. I love what the Puritans say. When the love of Christ becomes known in the heart of a sinner, its first gift is forgiveness from guilt. That's what happens to her. You know how? Do you know how we know it? Because the first demonstration of forgiveness is love. Those who are forgiven most love most. She comes and brings her most prized possession and she pours it on his feet, a possession she's gained through her own sin. How much do you love Jesus? You know what determines it? How much you know the extent of your own sin. How much do you love him? It's inexorably linked to how much you know yourself to be a wicked sinner. You see, that's Simon's problem. That's why when he invites Jesus to dinner, he doesn't give him a kiss. He doesn't provide any water for his feet. When your faith is founded on your own goodness, you only do what's necessary. You only do what's conventional. You reach in your pocket and you pull out a 20 for a homeless guy. But you know something? When your faith is founded on grace... When you know that he has taken from you all of your sin and all of your guilt, you don't act on convention. You act on impulse. And the impulse of your heart is to love him. You see, there's only one spring from which human love for God flows. And it's not the spring of keeping the law. It's the spring of receiving His grace. See, Jesus knows exactly who she is. He knows exactly what the Holy Spirit has done in her heart. He knows that when she comes up behind Him and pours out all of the vain riches of her former corruption, 
She pours it out on the same feet that will carry him all the way to the place where he will die for every sin and all of the guilt. You see, she's already been resurrected. She's already been freed from guilt and shame. And she wants to come and thank him for it. Where do we get the idea that repentance is the cover charge for grace? Where do we get the idea that if we repent, then we earn God's favor? Repentance is a gift. Peter tells that plainly twice in the book of Acts, chapter 5 and 11, that repentance is a gift of grace. And Paul seals the deal in 2 Timothy chapter 2 where he says the same thing. This woman has received a gift. The gift of repentance. And that gift produces in her a desire to give to the Lord all that she is. All of her sin all of her brokenness. And for her, he is her anointed one. Do you see it? Her act of love is not the cause of his forgiveness. It's the evidence of it. You know, for years when I read John 14, where Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I always saw that as a challenge. In other words, the more commandments I keep, the more I'll love him. Well, if that's the case, then Simon would have loved Jesus in spades. He specialized in keeping commandments, at least on a surface level. So did Saul of Tarsus. But the gospel never lets us get away with that kind of nonsense. Obedience never produces love. Love produces obedience. And you know what it generates? It generates an awareness of one's own sin and guilt. And you know what produces love? A guilty heart that knows what it's like to be forgiven and cleansed. Think of it. Without her past, she would never have known a future with Jesus. Without the darkness of her own guilt, she'd never know the resplendent splendor, the light of his forgiveness. Without the depth of disobedience in her life, she would never know the extent of her own brokenness. Without her past and the power of the Holy Spirit giving her a gift of repentance, she would be just like Simon, believing that everything you receive from God is a function of your own merit. 
No wonder she falls at Jesus' feet. She knows what it means to be freed. She knows what it means to be a captive and find deliverance in him. She knows what it's like to be freed by his forgiveness. So I ask you, what are you going to do with your guilt today? Are you going to hold on to it like Simon? Oh, he was guilty, he just didn't know it. Are you going to spend the rest of your life decorating your tomb? (laughs) Or are you going to go to the feet of Jesus and pour it all out to him in gratitude? knowing that he came to set captives like you free. That's what that man in New York wanted. He didn't want 20 bucks. He wanted Jesus. That's what that woman in Simon's house wanted. She wasn't there to earn anything. She was there to declare her love for him. So what about you? It's not just pagans that need to be asked that question, what are you going to do with your guilt? It's Christians who need to be asked that question every hour of every day. Think about that. Amen.